Part Two: The First Disciple. Ajahn Sumedho. In 1967, a Wat Ba Pong monk named Venerable Sommai returned from a Tudong trip to northern Isan with a monk who literally stood head and shoulders above him. Even the most restrained monks in Wat Ba Pong were unable to resist at least a surreptitious glance. The new monk was six foot two inches tall, had a fair complexion, an angular nose, and bright blue eyes. His name was Sumedho. The two monks had met in a meditation monastery in Nongkai Province. Upon discovering that they were both Korean War veterans and that Venerable Sommai spoke English, they had exchanged their stories. Ajahn Sumedho told Sommai how, after the war, he had returned to college and gained a master's degree in South Asian Studies from Berkeley. Upon graduating, he had joined the Peace Corps and taught English in Borneo before moving on to a spell at Tamasad University in Bangkok. He said that it was after receiving meditation instruction at the nearby Wat Mahat Hat that his interest in Buddhism. First kindled by his readings of Japanese haiku poetry during his military service some ten years before, had ripened into the decision to become a monk. Now, however, after moving to Isan, receiving full ordination, and spending the last several months in a small hut on solitary retreat, Ajahn Sumedho was beginning to lose confidence in the form of his monastic life and feeling the need for a more rounded way of practice. Venerable Sommai's descriptions of Wat Ba Pong were timely and inspired him. He asked permission from his preceptor to leave, and before long, the two monks were setting off together to walk the 450 kilometers south to Ubon. It would turn out to be a decision with far-reaching consequences. Ajahn Sumedho would go on to spend the next ten years of his life in Ubon under the guidance of Lung Po. He would form the nucleus around which a community of Western monks coalesced. In 1975, he would establish the branch monastery Wat Ba Nana Chad before moving to England in 1977. There, at Chithurst in southern England, he founded the first of several overseas branch monasteries. When someone once asked Lung Po whether he had any special connection with Westerners that led to so many becoming his disciples, he replied with a smile that as a boy he had watched a cowboy movie with his friends. Images from it had stuck in his mind ever since, and perhaps they had exerted some kind of attractive force. One of the characters in the movie was this big man smoking cigarettes. He was so tall. It fascinated me. What kind of human being could have such a huge body? That image has stuck in my mind until now, and a lot of Westerners have come. If you're talking about causes, there was that. When Sumedho arrived, he was just like the cowboy in the movie. What a long nose! As soon as I saw him, I thought to myself, "This monk is a Westerner." And I told him that I'd seen him before in a movie, so yes, there were supporting causes and conditions. That's why I've come to have a lot of Western kith and kin. They come, even though I can't speak English. I've tried to train them to know the Dhamma as I see it. It doesn't matter that they don't know Thai customs. I don't make anything of it. That's the way things are. I just keep helping them out. 
That's the gist of it. When Sumedho asked to be accepted as a student, Lung Po agreed but made one condition, that he fitted in with the Thai monks and didn't expect any special considerations. Ajahn Sumedho himself recalls, At the other monasteries in Thailand where I'd lived, the fact that I'd been a Westerner had meant that I could expect to have the best of everything. I could also get out of the work and other mundane things that the other monks were expected to do. I'm busy meditating now. I don't have time to sweep the floor. Let somebody else sweep it. I'm a serious meditator. But when I arrived at Wat Pong, and people said, he's an American, he can't eat the kind of food we eat, Lung Po said he'll have to learn. And when I didn't like the meditation hut I was given, and asked for another that I liked better, Lung Po said no. The whole way of training was that you had to conform to the schedule. When I asked Lung Po if I could be excused from the long Dhamma talks which I didn't understand, he just laughed and said, you have to do what everyone else does. Wat Hong provided a very different monastic environment to the one Sumedho was familiar with. In his previous Wat, he had been living in solitude, sitting and walking at his hut, single-mindedly devoting himself to the development of meditation. The only human contact had been with a novice who brought him his daily meal. It had been a beneficial period for him, but he had become unsure how sustainable such a kind of monastic life would be in the long term. What he felt he lacked was veneer training. At Wat Pong, the emphasis was on communal activities, working together, eating together, etc., with all its rules. I knew that if I was going to live as a monk, I needed the monk's training and I hadn't been getting that at the meditation centre that I'd been in before. What Lung Po gave me was a living situation to contemplate. You developed an awareness around the monastic tradition, and it was something that I knew I needed. I needed restraint and containment. I was a very impulsive person, with a tremendous resistance to any kind of authority. I'd been in the Navy for four years and had developed an aversion to authority and rank. And then, before I went to Thailand, I'd spent a few years in Berkeley, California, where it was pretty much a case of doing your own thing. There was no sense of having to obey anybody or to live under a discipline of any sort. But at Wat Ba Pong, I had to live following a tradition that I did not always like or approve of in a situation where I had no authority whatsoever. I had a strong sense of my own freedom and right to asserting it, but I had no idea of serving anyone else. Being a servant was like admitting you were somehow inferior. So I found monastic life very useful for developing a sense for serving and supporting the monastic community. What impressed me about Luang Po? was that although he seemed such a free spirit, an ebullient character, he was at the same time very strict with the Vinaya. It was a fascinating contrast. 
In California, the idea of freedom was being spontaneous and doing what you felt like. The idea of moral restraint and discipline was like this big ogre that's coming to squash you with all these rules and traditions. You can't do this and you can't do that and pressing down on you so much. So my immediate reaction to the strictness of Wat Ba Pong was to feel oppressed. And yet, my feeling about Luang Po was that although his actions were always within the margins of the Vinaya, he was a free being. He wasn't coming from ideas of doing what he liked, but from inner freedom. So in contemplating him, I began to look at the Vinaya so as to use it, not just to cut yourself off, or to oppress yourself, but for freedom. It was a conundrum. How do you take a restrictive and renunciant convention and liberate your mind through these conventions? I could see that there were no limits to Luang Po's mind. Oftentimes, attachment to rules makes you worry a lot and lack confidence. But Luang Po was radiant. He was obviously not just someone keeping a lot of rules, and anxious about his purity. He was a living example of the freedom that comes from practice. Ajahn Sumedho was impressed and reassured by Lung Po's inquiries about his meditation practice. Lung Po merely acknowledged with a grunt that the method Ajahn Sumedho was using was valid and gave him permission to carry on with it if he found it useful. It did not seem to be a crucial issue. It was clear that what Luang Po was teaching was not confined to a particular meditation technique. His way was a comprehensive training, the creation of a context or environment in which any legitimate technique would bear fruit. This was exactly what Ajahn Sumedho felt he needed. You have to find someone you resonate with. I'd been in other places, and nothing had really clicked. I didn't have a fixed idea of having a teacher either. I had a strong sense of independence, but with Luang Po, I felt a very strong gut reaction. Something worked for me with him. The training at Wat Pa Pong was one of putting you in situations where you could reflect on your reactions, objections and so on, so that you began to see the opinions, views, prejudices and attachments that come up naturally in those situations. Luang Po was always emphasizing the need to reflect on the way things are. That's what I found most helpful, because when you're as self-centered and opinionated as I was then, you really need to open your mind. So I found Luang Po's way much more clear and direct, as I was very suppressed already. I really needed a way of looking at myself honestly and clearly, rather than just trying to suppress my feelings and force my mind into more refined states. He was also very aware of the individual needs of the monks, so it wasn't like there was a blanket technique. He realized that you really have to figure it out for yourself, and so how I saw him, how he affected me, was that he seemed to provide a backdrop for my life from which I could reflect. Even with this kind of appreciation of the way of practice at Wat Pa Pong, Ajahn Sumedho did not find it easy. Apart from the easily foreseen difficulties and frustrations he experienced with the language, culture, climate and diet, 
it was the vinaya, ironically, that caused him most misgivings. His personality had always been an idealistic one. He was drawn to the big picture, the unifying vision, and tended to get impatient with the nuts and bolts of everyday life. Unsurprisingly, he felt a natural antipathy to much of the detailed veneer instruction, which could seem to him like a continual nitpicking over trivial matters. The Vinaya readings were excruciatingly boring. You'd hear about how a monk who has a rent in his robe so many inches above the hem must have it sewn up before dawn, and I kept thinking, this isn't what I became a monk for. The Vinaya texts prescribe various duties to be performed towards a teacher by his students. One of them is to wash the teacher's feet on his return from arms round. At Wat Bapong, as many as twenty monks would be waiting for Luang Por at the dining hall footbath, eager for the honour of cleaning the dirt from his feet or having a hand on the towel that wiped them dry. At first, Ajahn Sumedho found the whole thing slightly ridiculous. Every day he would look on with bemusement as monks started to make their way out to the footbath. It was the kind of ritual that made him feel alienated from the rest of the community. He would be aware of the critical, judgmental part of his mind coming to the fore. But then I started listening to myself and I thought, this is really an unpleasant frame of mind to be in. Is it anything to get so upset about? They haven't made me do it. It's all right. There's nothing wrong with twenty men washing one man's feet. It's not immoral or bad behavior. And maybe they enjoy it. Maybe they want to do it. Maybe it's all right to do that. Perhaps I should do it. So the next morning, twenty-one monks ran out and washed Lumpur's feet. There was no problem after that. It felt really good. That nasty thing in me had stopped. Although the Buddha called praise and blame worldly dhammas, even the most dedicated and unworldly spiritual seekers must learn how to deal with them skillfully. Throughout his early days at Wat Bapong, Ajahn Sumedho received generous praise. In Buddhist cultures, the voluntary renunciation of sense pleasures in favor of spiritual training is an esteemed virtue. The sacrifices Ajahn Sumedho had made to become a monk inspired both his fellow monastics and the monastery's lay supporters. In leaving America and donning the ochre robe, not only had he given up a standard of living that Isan peasant farmers could only dream about, but he had done so in exchange for a life in one of the strictest and most austere forest wats in the country. The conservative Isan people, with their sense of security and well-being, so bound up with the maintenance of their traditions, were impressed by how well Ajahn Sumedho could live in exile from the conditions he was used to. They were inspired by how diligent and dedicated he was in his practice. As the only Westerner, he stood out and was a centre of attention wherever he went, second only to Luang Por himself. On the other hand, it's common for Thais to possess a natural, apparently almost effortless physical grace, which is enhanced by the monastic emphasis on developing mindfulness through close attention to form and detail. It confused them to see Ajahn Sumedho physically imposing and with an obvious zeal for the practice, but at the same time 
by their standards, so awkward and ungainly. In most, it provoked a quiet but affectionate amusement. For some, that amusement was soured with a hint of fear, jealousy and resentment. Ajahn Sumedho, both a little paranoid and enjoying the attention, could not help but feel self-conscious. They would ask, How old are you? I'd say, 33, and they'd say, Really? We thought you were at least 60. Then they would criticise the way I walked and say, You don't walk right. You're not very mindful when you walk. And I'd take this shoulder bag and I'd just dump it down, without giving it any importance, and they'd say, Put your bag down right. You take it like this, fold it over, and then you set it down beside you, like that. The way I ate, the way I walked, the way I talked, it seemed that everything I did was criticised and made fun of. But something made me stay on and endure through it. I actually learnt how to conform to a tradition and a discipline. And that took a number of years, really because there was always a very strong resistance. But I began to understand the wisdom of the Vinaya, and over the years, my equanimity grew. Pushed After a few years, Lung Po's attitude to Ajahn Sumedho changed. Seeing his disciples' growth in confidence and the praise he was receiving, he began to treat him more robustly. Ajahn Sumedho remembers, for the first couple of years, Lung Po would compliment me a lot and boost up my ego, which I appreciated, because I tended to be self-disparaging, and to have this constant, very positive attitude towards me was very helpful. Because I felt so respected and appreciated by him, I put a lot of effort into the practice. After a few years, it started to change. He saw I was stronger, and he began to be more critical. Sometimes he would insult me and humiliate me in public, but by then I was able to reflect on it. There were times that Long Po would tell the whole Dhamma hall full of lay people about things I'd done that were uncouth. Everyone, monks and lay people, would be roaring with laughter. I'd just sit there feeling angry and embarrassed. One time, a novice picked up my outer robe by mistake and gave it to him. Long Paul laughed and said he knew immediately whose it was because of the bad smell, the farang stink. Of course, I felt pretty indignant when I heard Long Paul say that. But I could endure it, and because of the respect I felt for him, I didn't show any reaction. He asked me if I was feeling all right, and I said yes, but he could see that my ears were bright red. He had a wonderful sense of timing, and so I could work with it and I benefited from being able to observe my own emotional reactions to being insulted or humiliated. If he'd done that at the beginning, I would never have stayed. There was no real system that I could see. You just felt that he was just trying to help you, forcing you to look at your own emotional reactions, and I always trusted him. He had such a great sense of humour, there was always a twinkle in his eye, always a bit of mischief, and so I just went along with it. 
Many of Ajahn Sumedho's most vivid memories of his early years at Wat Papong are of occasions when some dark cloud or other in his mind dissolved through a sudden insight into the desires and attachments that conditioned it. Lung Po's genius as a teacher seemed to him to lie in creating the situations in which this process could take place, bringing a crisis to a head, or drawing his attention most skillfully to what was really going on in his mind. His faith in Lung Po allowed him to open up. A smile from his teacher, or words of encouragement at the right moment, could make hours of frustration and irritation seem ridiculous and insubstantial. A sharp question or rebuke could wake him up from a long bout of self-indulgence. He was a very practical man, and so he was using the nitty-gritty of daily life for insight. He wasn't so keen on using the special event or extreme practices as on getting you to wake up in the ordinary flow of monastic life, and he was very good at that. He knew that any convention can become perfunctory and deadening after a while if you just get used to it. He was aware of that. And so there was always this kind of sharpness that would startle and jolt you. In the early days, frustration was the major fuel of Ajahn Sumedho's suffering. The afternoon leaf-sweeping periods could be exhausting in the hot season. One day as he toiled in the sun, his body running with sweat, he remembers his mindfulness becoming consumed by aversion and self-righteousness and grumbling to himself, I don't want to do this. I came here to get enlightened, not to sweep leaves off the ground. Just then, Lung Po approached him and said, Where's the suffering? Is Wat Pa Pong the suffering? I suddenly realized there was something in me which was always complaining and criticizing and which was preventing me from ever giving myself or offering myself to any situation. Another time I had this really negative reaction to having to sit up and practice all through the night, and I must have let it show. After the evening chanting, Lung Po reminded everyone that they should stay and meditate right through to dawn, except, he said, for Sumedho. He can go and have a rest. He gave me a nice smile and I just felt so stupid. Of course, I stayed all night. There were so many moments when you were caught up in some kind of personal thing, and he could sense that. He had the timing to reach you in that moment when you were just ripe, so that you could suddenly realize your attachment. One night we were in the small hall where we did the Batimoka, and his friend Lung Po Shaloi came to visit. Usually after the Batimoka was over, we would go and have a hot drink, and then join the lay people in the Dhamma Hall. But on that night, he and Lung Po Chaloi sat there joking with each other for hours, and we had to sit there and listen. I couldn't understand what they were talking about, and I got very irritated. I was waiting for him to tell us to go to the Dhamma Hall, but he just carried on. Every now and again he would glance at me. Well, I had a stubborn streak and I wasn't going to give up. I just got more and more angry and irritated. It got to about midnight and they were still going strong, laughing like schoolboys. I got very self-righteous. They weren't even talking seriously about practice or vinaya or anything. My mind kept saying, what a waste of time, they should know better. 
I was full of my anger and resentment. He knew that I had this stubborn, tenacious streak, and so he just kept going until two in the morning, three in the morning. At that time, I just gave up to the whole thing, let go of all the anger and resistance, and felt a wave of bliss and relaxation. I felt all the pain had gone. I was in a state of bliss. I felt I'd be happy if he went on forever. He noticed that and told everyone we could leave. Speaking from the heart Given Ajahn Sumedho's celebrity and his growing proficiency in Thai, it was natural that Wat Ba Pong's lay supporters would be eager to hear him give a Dhamma talk. Four years after his arrival, Lung Po decided that the time had come for his first Western disciple to begin a new kind of training, that of expounding the Dhamma. The opportunity arose during a trip to a branch monastery. As evening approached, a large number of lay supporters started to file into the monastery to participate in the evening chanting period and to listen to a Dhamma talk from Lung Po. With no prior warning, Lung Po asked Ajahn Sumedho to give the talk. The prospect of ascending the monastery's Dhamma seat and struggling to give an extempore address to a large audience in a language in which he was not particularly fluent was an intimidating one. Ajahn Sumedho froze and declined as politely but firmly as he could. But with his strong trust in Lung Po and the realisation that he was merely postponing the inevitable, he began to reconcile himself to the idea that soon he would have to start teaching. When Lung Po invited him to give a talk on the next observance day, he acquiesced in silence. Despite being well aware of Lung Po's view that Dhamma talks should not be planned in advance, Ajahn Sumedho felt insecure. At the time, he was reading a book on Buddhist cosmology and reflecting on the relationship between different realms of existence and psychological states. He made some notes for the coming talk. Observance Day soon came and Ajahn Sumedho gave the talk. Although his vocabulary was still quite rudimentary and his accent shaky, it seemed to go down well. He felt relieved and proud of himself. Throughout the next day, lay people and monks came up to him to express their appreciation of a fine talk, and he looked forward to basking in the sun of his teacher's praise. But on paying respects to Lung Po beneath his kuti and seeing his expressionless face, he felt a chill go through his heart. In a quiet voice, Lung Po said, Don't ever do that again. Ajahn Sumedho realized that Lung Po knew that he had thought the talk out beforehand and that in his eyes, although it had been an intelligent, interesting and informative discourse, it was not the Dhamma speaking. It was merely thoughts and cleverness. The fact that it was a good talk was not the point. In order to develop the right attitude towards giving Dhamma talks, a monk needs to guard his mind against the desire for praise and appreciation, and he must develop a thick skin. One night, Ajahn Sumedho was asked by Lung Po to give a discourse to the lay people with an unusual condition. It must last for three hours. After about an hour, he had exhausted his initial subject and began to ramble hunting with increasing desperation for things to talk about. He paused, repeated himself, 
and embarked on long, meandering asides, painfully aware of members of his audience getting bored and restless, dozing, walking out. Just a few dedicated elderly women sat there throughout the whole three hours, slumped, eyes closed, like gnarled trees on a blasted plain. Ajahn Sumedha reflected after it was all over. It was a valuable experience for me. I began to realize that what Luang Po wanted me to do was to be able to look at this self-consciousness, the posing, the pride, the conceit, the grumbling, the laziness, the not wanting to be bothered, the wanting to please, the wanting to entertain, the wanting to get approval. Turn and face the strange. Ajahn Sumedho was the only Western monk at Wat Pong for four years, until in 1971, two more American monks arrived to spend the rains retreat. One of them, Dr. Douglas Burns, was a psychologist based in Bangkok who intended to be a monk for the duration of the retreat. The other was Jack Cornfield, at that time known as Venerable Sunyo, who, after practicing in monasteries throughout Thailand and Burma, was to return to lay life and become one of the most influential teachers in the American Vipassana movement. Neither monk stayed at Wat Pong very long, but both exerted a strong influence on future developments. At the end of his short period in the robes, Dr. Burns returned to Bangkok, where he would recommend Westerners interested in becoming monks to go to live with Luang Po. A number of the first generation of monks came to Ubon following such a referral. In the months that Jack Cornfield was with Luang Po, he made assiduous notes of the teachings that he received and later printed them as the very popular Fragments of a Teaching and Notes from a Session of Questions and Answers. Subsequently, as Cornfield's own reputation spread in America, his frequent references to Luang Po introduced Luang Po's name to a Western audience. This acquaintance was strengthened by A Still Forest Pool, a collection of Luang Po's teachings which Cornfield co-authored with another ex-monk, Paul Brighter, formerly Venerable Varapanyo. Luang Po's charisma and his ability to move and inspire his Western disciples soon became well known. But if Luang Po was the main reason Wat Ba Pong became the most popular Thai forest monastery for Westerners seeking to make a long-term commitment to monastic life, Ajahn Sumedho's presence was often a deciding factor. Here was someone who had proved it could be done. He had lived a number of years in trying conditions with no other Western companions, and had obviously gained much from the practice. He was a translator and a mentor, and although he resisted the evolution, he was also becoming a teacher in his own right. Venerable Varapanyo arrived in Wat Pong at a time when Luang Po was away for a few days. His meeting with Ajahn Sumedho was crucial to his decision to stay. Sitting up there on the porch in the peace of the forest night, I felt that here was a place beyond the suffering and confusion of the world, the Vietnam War, the meaninglessness of life in America and everywhere else, the pain and desperation of those I'd met on the road in Europe and Asia, who were so sincerely looking for a better way of life, but not finding it. This man in this place seemed to have found it, and it seemed entirely possible that others could as well.
1972, the Sangha of Western monks was steadily increasing, and Luang Por decided that they should spend the rains retreat at Tamsangpet, a branch monastery perched up on a steep hill overlooking the flat Isan countryside, about a hundred kilometers to the north of Wat Bapong. Away from the guiding influence of Luang Por, personality conflicts festered, and a burnt-out Ajahn Sumedho left at the end of the retreat. To begin with, I felt a lot of resentment about taking responsibility. On a personal level, the last thing I wanted to do was be with other Western monks. I was adjusted to living with Thai monks and to feeling at ease within this structure and culture. And yet, there was an increasing number of Westerners coming through. Dr. Burns and Jack Cornfield had been encouraging people to come. After the Western Sangha had this horrendous rains retreat at Tamsangpet, I ran away, spent the rains in a monastery in the southeast and then went to India. But while I was there, I had a really powerful, heart-opening experience. I kept thinking of Luang Por and how I'd run away, and I felt a great feeling of gratitude to him, and I decided that I would just go back and serve. It was very idealistic. I'll just give myself to Luang Por, anything he wants me to do. We just opened this horrible branch monastery at Suan Kloi, down on the Cambodian border, and nobody wanted to go and stay there. I'd gone for a katina ceremony and been taller than all the trees. So in India, I thought I'd volunteer to go and take over Suan Kloi. I had this romantic image of myself. Of course, when I got back, Luang Por refused to send me there, and by the end of the year there were so many Westerners at Wat Bapong that he asked me to translate for them. Basically, I trusted him, because he was the one pushing me into things that I wouldn't have done by myself. <laughs>